This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. And my guest today is Dr. Rob Ashman. He is a writer, educator, filmmaker, and scholar from the University of Chicago. His research is centered around racism and inequality in the digital age. In this episode, we'll talk about how the mechanisms of racial inequality adapt to modern realities and persist in social media and other aspects of virtual and real-world communication. Hi, Rob. Thank you for joining me today. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Let's talk about your book, where you summarize your findings. The book is titled When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. You delve into online communication and how our communication changing the experience of racism. In the first place, what prompted you to study this exact channel of communication and what were your findings? When the hood comes off, broadly speaking, it is about the ways that online communication changes how we experience, understand, and respond to racism. And for me, this, these ideas began when I was in graduate school and I began, I think my first class on race were reading about how racism had become more subtle in the years following the classic civil rights movement where, you know, people used to yell racist words in your face, but now we, we experience microaggressions and laws used to be explicitly racist, but now laws are not, it's illegal to discriminate, but there are still ways that laws and policies privilege white folks over black folks and other people of color. And really just this discussion of how racism has changed fundamentally. And I think that I understood those things in, in terms of a way of thinking about racism at a structural level. But then I also had personal experiences with racism online and just things like playing video games. And I actually, right, I start the book by telling a story of the first time I was called the N-word was actually playing Halo, playing a video game online. And so really this is, this is a question for me of, of trying to, when I think about where the book came from, it was, I wanted to make sense of how do I think about these leading theories of race and racism coming out of sociology and the apparent contradiction of how the way the race operates online is not the same as, as the way it operates in many spaces. And how do we understand that contradiction? And when I say contradiction, I think that the world is full of contradictions and often those, those are places that we need to investigate. And so for me, it, this is a, a story where I'm really kind of combining some of my, as I in the book, what I do is I combine personal experiences with rigorous academic analysis in a way that, that I think that the truth of the world often it comes from a mix of sources for us. And so I think that for me, the book began as a way of investigating the apparent contradiction and really trying to make sense of a, a big change in society. Right. And before we move on to discussing your findings, can we talk a little about the way the virtual persona is constructed today? Because we understand that uh, the virtual personality is different from 
the physical person. And actually these two personalities complement one another. That's a great point. So it makes me think of this, there's an idea called the digital dualism fallacy. And it's this notion that our digital lives are separate from our real world lives. And, and then this idea that we can, because it, it, it is true that you can go online and become a different person. But for the most part, most people's lives are a mix of their digital and their physical. And so it is a fallacy to think that those two things are separate. And, and a better way of thinking about it is that we are living in an augmented reality where part of our lives are digital, part of our lives are analog. And, and I think that a, kind of a responsible way of, of analyzing any social phenomenon today is to take into account how is technology mediating relationships and growth and learning and communication. And so I think that we have to take the digital into account no matter, no matter what, what it is that we're studying. Yes, absolutely. Now let's talk about some uh, key points of your book. Among other things, you talk about a special language. Something is not named, but still it has this negative connotation behind it. Still, it's racist. I, I think that many folks of color in white, white dominated spaces, the way that we experience racism is less open and in your, in your face. The people aren't saying to you, hey, you're black, so you're not allowed on this campus. But then the way that we may experience it, right? Another of the stories I tell in my book is about being in grad school and getting carded. I've been asked to show my ID just walking into a building. Um, I've been asked to show my ID while playing basketball in the gym. And it's like, you have to show your ID to get into the gym. But for some reason, this person thought that I snuck into the gym, right? And so it's like, these things happen and they're not questions of, hey, you're black, she don't belong. But then that is what is implied in the question. And so I think that this type of might this something that we'd call a microaggression or a racial slight um, is something that that happens very often and that we often don't know how you know how to respond to it. And so the book has two parts. So part one is looking at how does online communication change the way racism is expressed and experienced. And then part two is how does it change the way that we res resist racism, the way we respond to racism. And so the the reason I want to point that out is that usually with these kind of subtle experiences. We are, excuse me, we aren't, many, most folks, folks don't know how to respond in, the, in those moments. The research says that the most common way to respond to racial microaggressions is to not respond. And so part of what I found, and, and the most exciting part of, of what I found in interviewing dozens of students from around the country is that many young folks of color feel much more comfortable challenging uh, racism online than they do in person. When there's a physical distance, you don't feel like you would, you're in danger for calling out racism. When uh, you're not alone because you have other friends online who see your comment, then you don't feel like this is you versus the world, that there is a community of people who are naming and challenging racism. And I think that the digital tools, right, while they, right, while we may see more ugliness online, digital tools also provide more opportunities for folks to to resist racism in new and innovative ways. And that, that is one, one of the exciting things about when the hood comes off for me is that this book really is not just a story about racism. It is a story about how people resist and rise to the challenge of, of, of racism.
that is coming in, in unexpected ways, but then they're fighting it in, in even more innovative ways. Right. So let's be more specific and talk about some most important cases of digital racism and some key responses that you observed, some efficient responses that really work in this context. Oh, yeah, yeah. So a student told me a story about, and, and, and let me just say, when I say student, so right, the, the data from this book comes from, I, I do interviews and focus groups with around uh, a little over 80 students around the country. And then I also have data from Twitter where I analyze millions of tweets over a 10-year period to look at trends. And the reason I started the project on the college campus is because this is, I, I see this as kind of being an ideal lab for seeing the ways that the online and the physical meet, where you are living in a educational community where folks are connected on social media and they see each other in person. And there's just kind of this more immediate and, and measurable connection between folks' digital and physical lives when you're dealing with kind of this this imagined community or a real community in that way, campus community. And so one example was there's a, there's a campus meme page and a student posted to a campus meme page, a picture of a black man who was a, a university employee reading the school newspaper at a table and captioned the photo with ha. And the joke was, right. The joke the student was making is that, right. I read the way people interpreted that was that he's making a joke about the fact that this black man is reading, where this black working class man is reading, right? That this is someone who, right, had, had kind of a, a, a serving role on campus. And in response to that comment, in response to this joke, dozens of people posted saying, hey, this is racist, you need to take this down. And this is something that the, the original poster defended saying, no, this wasn't about race. It was about the school newspaper. No one reads the school newspaper. And then black or students of color in response said, no, actually this is racist. And eventually the man took, right, the, the, the white man who made the first post ended up taking it down. And so this is an important, right? This is a kind of an interesting case because on one hand, when we think about racist jokes, they are very easy to defend. In person, if you challenge this person for making this joke, they can convince you like, no, I did not mean race. You were the one being racist because you're bringing race into this when really all I was doing was making a joke about the newspaper. So why are you making this about race, right? This is the type of argument that sounds familiar when we think about the, the Supreme Court recently to things that are happening in Florida, like what, right? Like that people want to ignore when race is, is, is having an impact, but because there were a number, right? This is not one person. This is not a, a person of color surrounded by five white coworkers who felt like, okay, I can't keep challenging this because I'm going to lose some friends. This was a number of folks of color, a number of white folks who were on the side of, no, this is problematic that convinced the red light, they, they, they convinced the first user that he had to take down the post. And so taking down the post doesn't mean that that first user had a change of heart, but what it does show is this is a, a, a shift and power dynamic. Whereas typically when we experience racism interpersonally, especially when it's subtle, we end up having to take that in silence. We have to accept it. Okay. Even though this makes me a little bit uncomfortable, there's nothing I can do about it. I just need to move on. 
But in this example online, because you have a community response that the poster had to change their behavior, even if their mindset wasn't changed, they had to delete the post, which showed that there is, rather there was in that situation, social power in the opposite direction where the person who did something that was a microaggression or a racist joke had to pull back from what they did. They had to modify their behavior as a response to the community that was deciding this was not okay. This is not something that we want to happen in this public online space that we share. It's an interesting point about uh, power dynamics. It's a good example of how you can actually resist racism. Did you observe some cases where a response to some racial comments led to a bigger conflict or argument? No, I think that I have, so what I did hear are lots of stories from people who responded in person and then backed off because they felt like what they were doing would not have a positive effect or they were worried about the effects that these conversations would have. The, The stories about online arguments typically ended in very different ways. So I think that there are um, a number of stories that were told about people um, ignoring racism that they wish they did not have to ignore. And because they're worried about, are they going to lose a friend for being too sensitive or too militant? Are they safe saying something in response? And then online, the story was very different where they felt like they had a community of support and they felt like the, 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 the in-person if they challenge a white person for doing something racist, that person can walk away, then it ends. Online, they can begin a discussion. And so I think that is the direction that things seem to go, that there kind of was a very clear distinction between what happened online and what happened in person. I think another reason for experiencing the digital environment as a safe environment is the possibility to, to think through your response, because while you're typing, you can articulate your thoughts. Exactly. And that's things that, that these are things I also heard in interviews where people saying like, look online, you can take your time. You can find some sources, you can attach some links that all of a sudden you have a much more convincing response that when someone says, no, this is not racist. And here's why you can say, here it is, here's evidence of why what you said is racist or it is wrong. And let me give you some proof. And that right that it makes people feel much more comfortable to be able to take their time and right again so one of the one of the reasons that people don't respond to racism in person is it happens too quickly that they're not able to to respond in time so i think having the time to to think about what it is you want to say being able to comment on something six hours later as opposed to after it happens, it would be awkward to bring it up the next day to a person when they may not even remember that this minor thing that happened that, that caused harm. What advice would you give to parents and educators on how to equip young people with uh, the skills uh, to navigate and respond to racial discourse in the physical world and online? That is a great question. I would say that one of the things that I found is I think that young people are better at it than we are, than the teaching generation is. Now, do I think that there are things that we can offer to help? Yes. But I think that by and large, I, as someone who was studying race, was surprised by what the students were doing. I didn't know it. I didn't understand. I didn't realize the changing dynamics. I think I was someone who studied race and studied social media 
but I, right, I, at the time that I started the study, I didn't even have social media, right? And so this is something where I really was learning from the people that I was talking to. And so I think that, that, um, that, that, that the, the youth, and there are jokes about this on um, social media where I've seen on TikTok, people make fun of how Gen Z is so anti-oppressive in their speech, right? So I think the, the folks of, of, of my generation almost laugh about the fact that you know, problematic or oppressive structures or interactions get challenged so much that it's almost a joke. And so I think that that's something that we have to learn from the younger generation is that there is, there seems to be an increasing consciousness of what a racial or gender or um, oppression around sexual orientation looks like and how we want to identify the language or the actions that are causing folks harm and then root them out. So what, what I would say to parents is, so first of all, we think we're right, maybe we can create a reading list from the books that are being banned, right? That the books that are being banned are books that highlight and identify ways that, that racism and sexism and homophobia are present in our society. And so, right, I, like, I think that the term that is used to describe content that that deals with those types of things is critical race theory. And so what critical race theory is, it is a framework to understand how racial oppression works and how racial oppression intersects with other forms of oppression. And so I think that, that right, this is not something that is typically taught to kids, but I think that there are ways that we can teach kids about true histories of what oppression has looked like in America, true histories of what resistance has looked like in America. Because I think both are hidden from us, that the dominant narrative of the civil rights movement is about there being one man, Dr. King, who was the savior. And right, like this makes us feel like, okay, we need a hero to save the day, to create social change. When the real story is, no, there are thousands of everyday normal people who engage in organizing and building each other up and, and right community building and training people to be leaders from within the community for decades in order to see the changes of the civil rights movement. And, and, and right. When we have these kind of alternative histories or, or real histories, alternative to the kind of the dominant narrative that they right teach kids that, oh, we are capable of social change. If there's something in the world that does not you know, that, that, that we find problematic, then that means that we can work together to find a solution to, to make a change. And so I think that an important piece or an important thing to, to do for the youth is to, I'm, I'm stealing from the liberation health framework here, is to rescue the memory of change. How did change happen in the past in a way that, that, that makes young people feel empowered to know that they have the ability to change their present and their future? Absolutely. I'm curious if you have studied artificial intelligence, because there is a lot of talk that we should be very uh, careful about its architecture. It's built by humans and humans have biases and they perpetuate those biases. What's your take on that? Yeah. Yeah. So in my book, I deal less with racist algorithms way, right? Like racist pattern recognition, which those are the things that are, are folks are concerned about with AI. And I'm more thinking about people's 
everyday experiences with racism and how those things are changing. And I think one way that AI can influence that is by the growth of misinformation around issues of race and oppression. And right, that AI can write all the, right? Like I think there's so much fake content online right now that can change how people think about things from COVID to critical race theory to, right, to the, the Supreme Court decision. And I think that that is a, a big danger of AI is creating more and more misinformation that keeps people from, from understanding the way that racism works, the way that racism continues to be a, a force that dictates people's life chances and, and opportunities and privileges. And, and, yeah. and, and so I think that for me is a big danger of AI. I think it's a little bit different than, right? But so of course, I think that it is a problem when you have biased algorithms, biased systems, biased code, that then the tools that we make are also going to be biased. But I think that, that what my research has looked at thus far has been more about, well, so what does that mean for people and how we experience racism on a day-to-day -day basis? I understand. As the director of the Digital Race Lab, uh, what kind of research are you currently conducting and what are your plans for the future? <laughs> right now, the project that, that we're working on is we have created a film. It's called Choose Your Own Resistance. And it, it was shot in 360 degrees uh, for use in a virtual reality headset, VR. And the purpose of the film is to model different ways of responding to racism. And this is something that comes directly out of the research in my book, When the Hood Comes Off, right? Which again, that we find that in person, folks do not feel as comfortable responding to racism. Online, they feel more comfortable. And part of what I wanted to do with the film is identify the reasons, the things that, that people perceive to be barriers that, that stop them from challenging racism in person. And then I want this to be an anti-racist tool that can help and get more people engaged and confident in challenging the racism that they see every day. So this is something that's in post-production right now. It's nearing completion. I'm very excited about it. But it, it, the stories that are shown in the film come directly out of research that I've done with youth. And so these are things that are based in reality. And it, it's, it's a new medium. I think VR is a is new and growing and I'm, I'm excited to be, to be stepping into that world as we try and use stories to engage folks in conversation and, and increase understanding of race and racism and how we can fight against it every day. Now I would like to ask you uh, a personal question uh, unrelated to uh, our main topic. Uh, you write um, that you love science fiction and you have kids who love uh, this type of books and that's an excuse for you to, to read them as well. So what kind of science fiction books do you read and what do you find so attractive? I grew up reading Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and I've always loved the fantasy. In terms of science fiction, I think I read more, I think I, that, that more, that's more for film than, than reading for me when I was growing up. And so things like Star Wars or The Matrix are also big loves of mine. So recently I just finished the wheel of time series and I'm late to, to get to it, but right. So I, I finished that earlier this year and the way I started it was that my kids and I and our family, we, my, 
my sister, my brother, and we watched the wheel of time season one last year when it was coming out around Thanksgiving and everybody was together. And that, that right season one was so good that I was like, wait, I need to know more. And so I read all the books. So now season two is coming out in a couple of weeks and we're excited about that. And I've actually started reading now the Stormlight Archive, which is written by Brian Sanderson, who finished the, so the author of the Wheel of Time sadly passed before he finished, but then he passed on the work to Brian Sanderson. So now I'm reading Brian Sanderson's, his other series now. So. I am always, I do always have some fiction that I'm reading, no matter what is going on in my professional life. It's great to find new ideas and to get inspired. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know how often I feel like I have ideas that connect to my research from those things. Although I do, in one of the chapters, I I use the epigraph. I, I take a quote from the Wheel of Time series. And... My last question is related to the title of this podcast, uh, and this is a traditional question for all my guests. The title is Being Modern, Being Human. What does it mean to you, being modern, being human today? Great question. For me, being human means to struggle. And I think that there, throughout history, we have, right, that there's never been a point in time when oppression was not something that was present. And I, I think that I feel fortunate for where my life is, but I've never felt disconnected from the struggle. And this is something that, that from a very young age. And I think that for me, I think that thinking collectively is important for us as humans to not just be looking out for our own interests to make sure that we can get the most that we can in our lifetime, but instead to be concerned for the folks who have less for the folks who don't have opportunity. And so I think that as someone who, you know, I, I've, I've had opportunity to have great education. I have a great job, right? My, my COVID is some, it, it was a time that I think really brought this to light for a lot of people. I think part of being human and being modern means understanding the problems in society and being a part of the solution and rejecting kind of the, what society tells us to do or what a capitalistic mindset tells us to do, which is to get as much as we can and to, to be okay with inequality because it is natural. These are great words. Thank you very much. Let's be human and modern and let's strive for more equality and a better world. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy being modern, being human, I'd love it if you could take a moment to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback is so valuable to me and helps you make the show better. And if you haven't already, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.